There's a scene in the film I Am Legend where, okay, civilization is over. The only person left alive in New York is Will Smith, and he is not able to find traces of anyone else alive anywhere on Earth. And every morning, he wakes up and makes himself breakfast and puts on videos of the Today Show for back before the Earth was destroyed, just, you know, to make the morning seem normal. One of the sports fans on our staff, Matt, was saying the other day that that is exactly what it's like today, watching the constant replays of old sports on television. He's watched the 2018 Stanley Cup, the NBA Finals Game 7 from 2013, an old Yankees game from 1978, the Masters last year, the Tiger Woods won, all that glory from back when life was normal and sports was part of it. Part of the thrill of the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, was that it wasn't just sports, but a primetime Sunday night sports event that you could look forward to and you could watch knowing other fans were watching and talk about and share memes just like the world used to be. These two guys who write about uh, college football, Jason Kirk and Spencer Hall, wrote this thing that I love about the lack of sports in our world today. These are guys who normally spend over 50 hours a week on a slow week watching games and thinking about sports who these days, like hungry men raiding an empty kitchen pantry for any scrap of food, have resorted to watching old college games that they've seen before and live Korean baseball in the middle of the night in the German soccer league, Bundesliga. Saturday morning, the choice was between Bundesliga and uh, Cornhole, the American tailgate game <laughs> where people throw sandbags at a, uh, a, a, a wooden plank. That's Jason. Here's Spencer explaining what he's come to. I yesterday put on for the edification of my kids and their larger education, Ricky Steamboat versus Macho Man Randy Savage at WrestleMania 3, and it's largely considered the greatest wrestling match of all time. And I realized that since I'm homeschooling my kids, they had to see the important classics of my culture. The canon. The canon, yeah. No, I mean, it really, like, we're joking, but we're not. Like, canonically, there's a lot of controversy about what is in the canon wrestling-wise. No one disputes this. Spencer's watching way fewer games under lockdown, and sometimes he says... He thought this actually might be better for him in some way to devote fewer hours to sports. Maybe. Maybe, but it also makes me realize that the things I fill them with aren't much better. There's a lot of empty space. There's a, there's, there's a lot of empty space out there, man. There's a lot of empty space in life. And when somebody says, you know, well, now you can now you can fill it with something really meaningful, will you? Or or is that even an option? I think there's only so much meeting you can pack into the hours of a week. I think there's only so much productivity within one person. I think that's something, by the way, this has forced me to confront. Anyway, the essay these guys wrote about sports during these sportsless months is called What Were Sports? And the tone of it is like people who live in tents surrounded by rubble after a war remembering what it was like to live in houses, looking back on their old lives, which only now they appreciate for what they were. Yes, it starts this way. I remember there were expensive commercials. I definitely remember expensive commercials being a part of live sports. I only noticed this when sports on replay happened. The ads for replay games are cheap and very sad. Home generators, car warranties, bootleg tactical gear for things that shouldn't be tactical, like car visors and hearing aids. Do you remember how, back when there were sports, each person had a list of teams they strongly preferred to win? Like, if the Portland Trailblazers and Memphis Grizzlies squared off, you and I would be a little bit happier about life if the Grizzlies were the team that won? What was that all about? 
Other things they miss? Phillies fans doing things that were not normal for anybody but Phillies fans. Spreadsheets of sports statistics for each game, whose results then went into a spreadsheet for the whole season, which then went into a historical archive spreadsheet. Watching a four-hour game and walking away with one gift-worthy moment, they write, felt like a version of sifting for gold, but a version in which the dirt itself was valuable. One cool thing I remember about sports is watching people run fast in one direction. It was fun to watch someone do this when unimpeded, such as when Usain Bolt walked into a mall in church shoes or whatever and ran as fast as the fastest NFL player ever had. But it was 10 times as fun when someone was able to run really far while other people were trying to stop that person from running far. Also fun, watching big people try to stop fast people from running. They write, sports with little chemistry labs designed to run for hours, months, and centuries along the way, producing countless things nobody could have predicted from the onset a cool, otherworldly space place where people could completely depressurize for several hours. And sometimes, succumb to space madness along the way, when things went haywire. Do you remember that part? That part was like Apollo 13, like when your team's starting safety went out with an injury and they had to figure out how to play with 10 defenders and one guy who should have been going to law school instead of covering the other team's best receiver? That part was a problem, but a fun one to solve? These problems very much belong to someone else despite us getting to invest feelings in whether they solved these problems or not. Caring about whether a mediocre general manager could finally figure out how to do sports budgets, this was kind of like politics, but in a fake world in which we didn't have to acknowledge politics can kill us. That was nice. There's a whole passage in the essay where Spencer reminisces about the last live game he went to, LSU and Clemson in New Orleans. They got oysters before the game and met a friend at a restaurant the next day to eat and talk football for hours. He writes, Do you hear all the beats of an impossible world playing there? I do. I feel every little ping of a world that I've only missed for 45 days at this point, like cactus needles just pressing into the skin of a hovering hand. Jason sums it all up neatly with this. For me, the thing that mattered most about sports is how they, by design, did not matter. We built industrial complexes around them, but at heart, they were about discovering which side had earned the right to shout the cooler obscenities on any given day. And then the following day, we would rediscover. But today on our program, for everybody who is yearning for sports right now in our sportsless world, we try to help with radio methadone for your sports addiction. Is that metaphor too negative? We have sports stories from back before the lockdown back when professional sports was still a vital daily living force. We relive the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Fact one, Friday night floodlights. Okay, so let's begin with this story of people yearning for sports to begin again. In a moment a few years back when nothing was normal at all, businesses were shut down, school was canceled, kids were stuck home. The story happened right after Hurricane Katrina in two towns in Mississippi that sit right on the Gulf of Mexico, Waveland and Bay St. Louis. Waveland was pretty much wiped out in the hurricane. Most homes and businesses there were destroyed or severely damaged. Bay St. Louis only did a little better. A month after the hurricane, when we broadcast our story about them, most people still didn't have electricity. You couldn't drink water from the faucet. One of the first things they decided to bring back, even before that other stuff, football, high school football. 
One of our producers back then, Lisa Pollock, went down there in 2005 during those early weeks after Katrina. I put together this story. The Bay High Tigers played their first game of the season on the Friday before Katrina. They beat Hancock High 30-14. After the storm, the joke was that they'd gone undefeated. Everyone figured the season was over. Players were homeless. The high school was closed. But just days after the hurricane, the Bay High coach, Brennan Compretta, started hearing from his players. They wanted to play football. They called his cell and sent text messages. They stopped him on the street. They wanted to play football. They wanted something that reminded them of what life was before. The thing that a lot of them were saying is it only takes 11 and to play and that they, no matter how many they had, they, they wanted to do this. That was the only thing that they had to look forward to, you know. You wouldn't stage a school play without a school, but football's different. Here anyway. In Bay St. Louis, game day starts at 6.30 a.m. with a team breakfast at a church. Newspaper stories about the game are posted on the wall at school. In the afternoon, drummers from the band march through the hallways just before the pep rally. Strangers in town stop players to talk about that week's game. So even though school won't start again until November, the coach called a meeting to try to restart the team. There were some challenges. Only 19 players showed up of the 70 who were on the team. They couldn't use their practice field since National Guardsmen were camping there. Their field house was destroyed and most of their equipment. And as for their uniforms... We pulled up a few days after the storm. Just They had people running around in our jerseys and cleats and throwing balls around. And, you know, I guess it was fathers and sons or whatever. Wait, so you saw people wearing, like, your guys' football jerseys just, right. like, as, like, replacement clothes? Right, exactly. And, and you know, as, considering the circumstances, you know, I didn't get really upset about it. I was just was like, well, I guess if they need some clothes, they can go ahead and take them, you know. They're saying that there's a possibility. They're saying it's probably going to be one of the most packed games we've played ever. It's game day, the Tigers' very first game since Hurricane Katrina, one month after the storm. And I've flown to Mississippi, where Tyler Brush, the team's quarterback, is showing me around. There's not a lot to see, just huge piles of wreckage. And near the beach, mile after mile of empty spaces, where houses and buildings used to be. After the hurricane, Tyler's family left for a while moved to Florida to a town where they used to live. They got a nice house, and Tyler began high school there. He was practicing with their football squad, and he was going to be a starter there, too. But then Coach Comprata called. Tyler says coming back here was a hard choice. My dad, he originally didn't want me to come back. I mean, he was pretty much against it, but he decided, I mean, he said that it was my decision. I mean, I had to think about it a lot. Um, I was nervous about coming back. I mean, I, I recognized the situation I was in. I knew what I was, I was taking the chance if I came back here. College teams might not see me play. And, but I felt that I still needed to come back, though, for whoever did come back. His quarterback, he didn't want to let the team down. So now his family's living 15 miles away in Diamond Head, and two of the team's other players, whose families didn't return, are living with them, too. This is a strange place to be a kid right now. With no school, they spend their days doing cleanup work, hauling out sheetrock and moving trees and debris. It's bleak and boring. Their favorite hangouts are gone. Football is one of the few things they have left. We're actually pulling up to my house now. Yeah, this is pretty much nothing left in my house. 
stairs right here. We're right here leading up to um, the house. They're completely gone. Literally all we are looking at are the wooden stilts that held up the house and the foundation which looks like it was lifted up from the ground. Yeah. And I mean there isn't even like stuff around like furniture or clothes or where'd all this, where'd all this stuff go? I guess the water just washed them up that way. Compl wiped out, there's nothing left. Does anybody in here need pants? You need pants? Come with me. Over at the football field, the new uniforms arrive just in time. A gift from a man in North Carolina. And the kids line up while the coaches open the boxes. The new jerseys are blue and white, not blue and gold, the school colors. But no one seems to care. Hold on. Hey, man, we're not getting picky here. Just relax, buddy. What, what do you need? This isn't the team it used to be. Over half the Tigers still haven't come back. So the coaches have filled out the roster with some new recruits. A few seniors who've never played football, some freshmen from the school's ninth grade team, two guys from the Tigers' arch rival, St. Stanislaw, they canceled their season. And to cap it all off, bad news bear style, some scared-looking 7th and 8th graders from the junior high. In all, it's still just 29 players, a long way from 70. Some of these kids are all but homeless, sleeping on other families' couches and floors. One linebacker is living in a camper, alone, his parents hours away. Also, he can play football. With everything these kids have been dealing with and everything they've seen, they seem genuinely relieved and excited to be here today, putting on jerseys and lacing up cleats. Everybody's just anxious to play again, to get things back to normal. That's Trevor Adam, a senior tight end. And for him, getting things back to normal means pretty much one thing. I love hitting people. That's, I mean, there's no better feeling in the world just unloading on somebody. I mean, even now, Dealing with all this, you have an extra feel of warmth. You get just that exciting feeling about, you know, hitting somebody. There's no, you can't explain it. Equally excited is Brant, a 10th grader. I think Brant might be one of the happiest kids I've ever met. He doesn't stop beaming, even when he's talking about swimming through his flooded kitchen or living for weeks without plumbing or power. He moved to Texas to stay with a relative for a while, but didn't stay long. Texas was great. Everybody was real kind, like scary kind. It was just like, like have you ever seen the, the Stepford Wives? How everything's perfect? That's how it was. They were all like, hi, how are you doing? Are you, oh, I, can I get you anything? Yeah, clothes, food? And I'm like, I'm fine, ma'am. So does this feel like a, a normal um, couple hours before a game, or does it feel different? Way different. One thing I'm going to miss before the game is the pregame meals. We don't have that here because <laughs> them pregame meals are good. All you can eat. What kind of food? Oh, baked chicken with all these spices on it. It was so good. You're, you're making me hungry. That was like a month ago. So you've, like, you've stayed here this whole time. What's there been to eat for you? Oh, um, three meals a day, MREs. So so what, what's an MRE taste like? Um, I'll tell you what. The number, meal number 20 and meal number 22, that's uh, <laughs> 20 spaghetti and 22 is jambalaya. The best. I, t I told my mama she needs to step it up because that stuff is, I, I, I'm going to just start getting MREs just regular. All right, hey, guys, everybody right here where these guys are, get out. Y'all can take a knee or something. Let's go real quick. You can sit down or take a knee, either one. It's late afternoon now, about an hour before the game. Everybody gathers around Coach Compretta, and he urges them to think about the past month when they get on the field tonight. Everything you have inside of you, let it out. All the aggravation, the frustration, having to get up and do all the junk you do every day because of this hurricane, let it all out right here. 
Play for your community, okay? That's why you're here, okay? Some people can't be here. Play for the guys who can't be here, too. Play for Bay St. Louis and Waverly. Does anybody have any questions about anything? Offense, defense, special teams, what? What? I love everybody. I love you too, Kyle. I love you too, Kyle. Of course, there's only so much love one football team can take. An hour later, as the team gets ready to run onto the field, the coach has this to say. So forget all the kindness and niceness right now, all that junk. Go out there and get after their behinds. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. Okay? Yes. Now, we do want to win the football game, okay? Everybody touch somebody. Let's go. Break it down. win. It's kind of hard to believe that out of the ruins of this town, just down the street from gutted houses and buildings, this thing has appeared, this movie-set perfect football game. It's dusk now, with a pinkish sky, and under the stadium lights, everything's kind of glowing, and everyone showed up to play their part. The cheerleaders, the PA announcer, the marching band, or what's left of it, a single kid with a snare drum standing in the bleachers. Please join me in singing the national anthem. The opposing team, the Long Beach Bearcats, line up on the other side of the field. The moment I see them, my heart sinks a little. Not only are there twice as many of them, they just look so determined. Assistant Coach Keyes sizes them up this way. Uh, <laughs> uh, big. They, uh, they came here on three buses. Uh, we need a minivan, you know. <laughs> uh, big difference. And they don't have junior high kids out there, and we do. Not even the quarterback's father expects the Tigers to win tonight. They're missing so many guys that they'll have to play their good players twice as much. Their starters will play offense and defense. Guys will wear out. You're the kicking for the Bearcats, Chip Bondaboo. Right there. The Tigers get off to a great start. The first time they get the ball, they go on a drive that lasts half the first quarter and ends with a touchdown on a six-yard run by Robert Labatt. I watch Tyler pass the ball off to Robert, knowing that Tyler pretty much moved back to town for this moment and that Robert, who's living with him, separated from his own family, did too. Get out there, go, go, go! Push it in! Yeah! On the sidelines, eight Tiger cheerleaders are jumping around. It's more than half the squad. One tells me her uniform was the first thing she packed when her family evacuated. When the girls aren't cheering, they're consulting this big, elaborate chart they've set up in front of the bleachers. Celeste, the captain, explains. This is our cheer list, and we have 63 cheers on it. And every year we just take it and we add more to it. But Okay, so like, what's 36? Um, 36 is G-O, Go Tigers Go. And then what's 37? 37 is G-O, go, go, G-O, go. And what's 28? Go, go, G-O, go, Tigers, go. There's some similarity. Yes, they're very. The coaches are scurrying up and down the field, improvising to fill in for the key players they don't have, swapping kids in and out. Brant, the MRE kid, is getting trounced out there. How much time? So the coach pulls him aside. Hey, Brant, not bad, baby. Not bad, baby. Not bad. Ready to change? Put somebody in there with a little more behind on them, okay? Yeah, I got manhandled. I out know there. we saw that. But the rookie players come through with some surprises. For instance, at the very same moment that the coaches are grumbling to themselves about where exactly freshman Alan Valalta is heading on the field, 
Villalta recovers a fumble. Oh, God, Villalta don't know where the f Oh, damn, he just made a play. He just made a damn play. By the end of the first half, it's Tiger 7, Bearcat 6. Good job, Walt. That a boy. Good job. The home bleachers are pretty packed by now. And the thing I realize when I start talking to people is that this is the first time this town has gotten together since the hurricane. One of the first people I meet, Gary Yarbrough, doesn't even have a kid on the team. I'm just out here just trying to see who's still here and who's still in town and visit with the other folks and kind of see who, how everybody's handling everything and dealing with everything. So is this I, the first time you're seeing a lot of folks in a while? Yeah, some of them, yeah, because, you know, with the curfews and, and nothing open in town, there's really no place to go to see anybody. As I walk through the stands, the one thing people keep telling me is what a normal night this is, what a relief it is to do something normal again. But talk to anyone for more than a couple of minutes, and what you hear next is just how far from normal everything is. They're worried about flood insurance and FEMA trailers and whether they'll have jobs. I ask one man, the Booster Club president, what the highlight of the game is so far, and he nearly starts to cry. Down on the field, the Tigers are playing better than anyone had expected. Going into the fourth quarter, the score is 21-6, Tigers comfortably leading. But then in the last five minutes of the game, everything falls apart. The Bearcats star player, Tremaine Brock, rushes for a touchdown. They miss the extra point, so it's 21-12. Two minutes later, with just three minutes left in the game, Brock sprints 55 yards to the end zone as the Tiger coaches watch helplessly. I see it, he's gone. He's gone. It's a two-point game now, 21-19. The Tigers are still leading, but Long Beach has the momentum, and they only need a field goal to win. The Tigers are completely exhausted. Many have been on the field the entire game, the kicker's limping. Alan Villalta, the ninth grader who made that great play, is on the sidelines with an injured knee. The Tigers get the ball back, their last possession, but they can't even manage a first down. They punt it away, and there's still plenty of time for Long Beach to score. Don't let them behind you. Don't worry, you don't worry about the first. Be ready to drop. The Bearcats start to drive again. They cross the 50-yard line into Bay High territory. The clock is running down. Coaches are screaming. Jason, be ready to drop. There we go, there we go. The place is going nuts. I can honestly say this is the only football game I've ever been to where it really did seem to matter who won. Earlier, I felt bad taking sides against the Bearcats. Their town was hit by the hurricane, too. But now I don't know what I'll do if the Tigers lose. Their town was hit harder. They're the underdogs. They have to win. And then, they do. They stop the Bearcats. It's over. Shake it up! Shake it up! Shake it up! The clock runs out and the place explodes. 2119 Tigers. It's every corny sports movie come to life. People streaming on the field, hugging, players sprawled on the ground. All these people in this wrecked town, ecstatic over a football game. Assistant coach Jeremy Turcott. Uh, I think next to getting married and having my baby, that's about the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. Hey, guys, listen up. We'll let you go. I know we got to get home. Coach Comprata. Never been more proud, okay? in my coaching career. Never been more proud of the group of guys in my life than right now. Love you guys. I love you guys. Take tomorrow off. See you on Wednesday, 3.30. Be here for 3.30, okay? 
All right, everybody touch somebody. Great job, fellas. Great job, fellas. Break it down. What's up, win? All right. St. Louis and Hancock County is still under a curfew, ladies and gentlemen. After the game, you'll need to go home as soon as possible. And just like that, the place clears out. A half hour later, the only people left are the coaches, still reliving the game. Luke, one of the assistants, is on the cell phone with his brother in Alabama. They had the ball with about a minute and a half left, driving with no timeouts, and we sacked them in no time left. But I just want to call and tell you that, man. I'll, uh, I'll call you tomorrow sometime. I just want to holler at you real quick. I love you, brother. Bye. Bye. Of all the coaches I met here, Luke seemed the most discouraged about everything. He'd lost his house. He sounded disheartened. In the morning, he told me that when his contract is up in May, he'll probably leave here. But now his mood is different. And, you know, we play next Friday night here, and, you know, it, it's not like the town's going to be back to normal next Friday night. So, I mean, they're still going to not have anything to do. There's still going to be a curfew. And, you know, I mean, this just just it starts it. I mean, if you lose tonight, it's like, you know what, you go home and you're sitting in a trailer and you have no AC and you, and you lost a football game. But, you know, it's a little easier to go home and, and sit in a trailer with no AC when you just won a football game that, that nobody gave you a chance to win. Before coming to Bay St. Louis, I felt the way I think a lot of us feel when we see these places on TV. I didn't understand how you go back to a town like that, to all that loss, and live there in the middle of it. What are you going back there for? And how do you even begin to get over it? Watching the Tigers win, 21-19, completely outmatched, everyone together, cheering them on. I knew the answer. Lisa Pollock. So we checked in this week with Tigers coach Brennan Capretta. He is not the coach anymore, but is still very involved with the team. He uh, told us that in some ways the pandemic has been harder on the high school kids in town than Katrina was. The kids facing Katrina, he said, could we still hang out together? Right now the school plans to be open in the fall. The team is supposed to start summer workouts in about a week, June 1st, with the first game scheduled for August. That's the plan for now anyway. Two, Dunkin' Go Nuts. So back in 1996, when Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls were at the height of their power, on their way to winning the fourth of the six championships that they won back in the 90s, we did an episode of our show on the Bulls and just about loving basketball. It included um, the story of a barber named Tommy, who was the one person rooting against the Bulls in a barber shop on the south side full of Bulls fanatics as they all watched a playoff game on television, the Bulls against Shaquille O'Neal and the Orlando Magic. I like Shaq. Yeah. And they're having a rough time at the moment. But can't give up the ship, Jack. That's right, can't give up the ship. Even at halftime, the Bulls up by 10. Tommy did not let up. Scissors in hand, a toothpick dangling from his lip, he declared, Lando coming back, win by five. Oh, it ain't over to the fat lady scene. I think it was just funny to him to calmly say no to a room full of hyped up fans. Later, when the game ended and the Bulls won by 15, 
Tommy insisted, no biggie. The Bulls will lose the coming series against Seattle. And then, um, okay, this is the scene I narrated back then in that show. Then we all looked up, and through the plate glass window in front of the barbershop, we saw a car pull up. A guy climbs out with a brand new broom in his hand and strides towards the barbershop. He's bringing the broom to Tommy. The guy walks in and stands, broom in hand, near the door. What's the problem? I told you I was going to come back up here now. Hey, Tommy, you didn't think that was going to sweep, huh? You mean ain't no sweep? Tommy, I can't hear you, man. Did you see the bull run down the street? Was, was Shaquille on it? The guy's name is Derek, a regular at Coleman's. Huh? Tommy, I got to go home and celebrate, man. Me and all my bull friend buddies, we finna go celebrate. You gonna jump on the bandwagon sooner or later, Tommy. We gonna make a believe out of you. No right. Tommy's unmoved. I'm already talked to Gary Payton. Boy, we gonna do it in fall two. Gary Payton, see out. <laughs> that episode of the show wasn't just about being a basketball fan. It was also about playing basketball and what it can mean to you, and not incidentally, all the trophies that you collect along the way if you're serious about the game. The further you get, the bigger the trophy. Though, of course, some trophies do not age very well. You get old enough, and at some point, they can just start to look like dusty, aging clutter. One of our producers, Nancy Updike, uh, talked to a friend of hers who played a lot of basketball all about this. When I met up with my friend Mary to talk about basketball, she was having some trouble with her trophies. she just moved to a new apartment, and her new place was small. So small that a bunch of high school trophies would just dominate any room they were in. She had the trophies in a box in the living room, and we sat on the floor pulling out fake silver statuettes of girls in culottes, reaching ever upward, hopeful and fit, like in Soviet propaganda posters. Can't you see, like, feeling really tough walking home with something this big, especially if you hold it like this? Sure. <laughs> you grab that baby by the base. Then she found one that was not like the others. Sort of hard to understand, actually. Picture this. A thick slice of wood, sanded and shellacked, and mounted with a miniature rim and backboard. And then leaping across the front, a stick figure made of roofing nails, going in for a slam dunk. Mary identified this as her 1978 girls varsity team trophy from Cardinal Doherty High School. And the girls, she said, had not been pleased with the trophy at all. It's ugly, isn't it? Yeah, it is truly. It's so we were all beyond. really unhappy. We wanted like a traditional, a tree. <laughs> yes. I want it. I want it. We, we would rather have had like the, the also ugly but much more acceptable old version of trophies than, oh, than sure. those trophies. Oh, sure. I mean, if you're a 13-year-old girl, you don't want to be walking home with that. You want no. that. Right, right. That's a trophy. You want something that goes up high in the sky, not something that, you know, is a slice of a tree. <laughs> you don't want <laughs> a slice of a tree with a nail stick figure soldered together. Yeah, I don't think doing the that. one thing that you know you'll never be able to do, dunk. Was that was that something that you all discussed? Oh yeah, I mean we that and we also thought that that was the only reason we'd never be in the NBA. Luckily for us, we all thought, well, you know, we're we're really you know, some of the best players on the face of the earth. You know, when you're a 16-year-old girl who's sure. playing on a, you know, a, at a tough Catholic league school, like you think, yeah, we're good enough. You know, I'm just as good as Maurice Cheeks. And, you know, the doctor would like to play with me and um, Dr. J. Um, 
And, you know, we, we could attribute our lack of, you know, success in the NBA to the fact that we were girls, soon to be women, who would never dunk, and that's all that was keeping us from it. Mary handed me the wood slice trophy, and when I reached to touch the stick figure, I realized that one of its feet was on a pivot, so I could actually make it go in for the dunk. Once I discovered this, it was impossible not to do it over and over and over. The trophy was completely hypnotizing, a disturbing artifact from an artistic period best forgotten. That, that, that the art of the late 70s, you know, especially like in... Catholic um, religion textbooks and, you know, churches and stuff was so ugly. Who knew there was even a, a genre, the late 70s Catholic yeah. textbook <laughs> art world. You know, that whole I'm scene. afraid I've been so influenced by it. It's like, you know, <laughs> I, I need those, to walk away. those little ink drawings that are just a little bit off on purpose, you know what I mean? And the on-purposeness of it is just like, you know. It makes oh, you want to grit your teeth. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You can always like hear a Cat Stevens song playing in the background. <laughs> As a kid, Mary played basketball mostly with her older brother, Daniel. The two of them roamed around the city together looking for pickup games whenever they could, all summer, every weekend, even at night because the court down the street had lights. It was a way to get out of the house, to escape the chaos of 11 kids in a working-class Irish family in a two-small house on the edge of northeast Philadelphia. Basketball was a place of clear rules and gestures that always made sense. And home was a place where you could get hit for no reason or find yourself still hungry at the end of a meal. Mary remembered being hungry a lot growing up, a fact always cheerfully denied by the nuns at school. The message was um, you couldn't be hungry because your parents are saints. Um, And they especially directed it to our family and to all the other families that had um, a lot of kids in them, that our parents were saints because they worked so hard to provide for us. So I thought that I was just, you know, extraordinarily um, greedy, that that I would want to, you know, eat when I was hungry. Um, I think that the playing basketball was a way to say, You know, like if I could use my body in this way that, um, you know, got me status and attention um, and a certain amount of prestige, then then my body was okay in a way, even though, like, it was, I mean, I was way too skinny when I was a kid. um, And, like, it was cause for concern for the school nurse a couple times. And... Playing basketball was a way to say, you know, you're not you're not going to have neural damage <laughs> from being malnourished. You're just going to have these other minor malnourished problems. Another good thing about basketball was that it was cheap. Mary bought the family a rim and a basketball for their backyard when she was only seven or eight, using her first communion money. 65 bucks in $5 increments from everyone in her huge family. The only equipment she really needed and could never afford were good shoes. She always had those supermarket checkout line shoes with the hard plastic soles that were completely embarrassing, of course, but also had no grippability. So she would be running down the court and go sliding 
and be called for traveling. So one year she got up the courage to ask a girl down the block for her old shoes. Her name was Karen, and uh, she had really nice beta bullets, high tops, white, and um, I wanted her sneakers, and because I knew she was getting new ones. And um, in our neighborhood, there is the practice of throwing your old sneakers up over the telephone wires when you're done with them. Um, and most of them were hardly worn out at all. I mean, not, I mean, they, a lot of them, you could see that there was tread missing, but like, it's not like you had ripped through the top of them. Um, and I had asked her for them, and she said, yeah, that she would give them to me when she got her new ones. And, um, and it was, like, I thought that it was a little bit weird that I would ask somebody for their used shoes, but we had other clothes that were used from other people. And, you know, she was tough, and she kind of had this, like, you know, she seemed like she'd be the kind of person that could, like, keep something like that to her and, and would know what it meant. And, um, and she did. She never told anybody, except, of course, the most important person that she shouldn't have told, her mother. And her mother got um, really upset and told her that she couldn't give them to me. And there they were, hanging up on the telephone wire, my sneakers. And I'm sure that her mom did that because she was afraid that if I came home with a pair of used sneakers, that it would be insulting to my mother. I'm sure that they all had this understanding of themselves, like, you know, you don't insult someone else's. You don't insult one of your peers by giving their kids your crappy shoes, even though they're better than the crappy shoes that you bought for them, you know? <laughs> There were always like really beautiful sneakers hanging up on the wires, and there was no way to get them, no way at all. They just like floated up there, and you know what? I think that's when I decided that um, platonic idealism was true. <laughs> there really was a perfect thing that I would never experience, <laughs> at least while I played in that Catholic league. <laughs> And only I could see them for what they were. <laughs> they only saw worn out tread. I saw a season of unforeseen high statistics. <laughs> we talked for two hours about basketball, and we kept returning to the dunk and the cruelty of the dunk on that wood slice trophy. A dunk by a stick figure, made of nails, driving home their 18-year-old sense of frustration. They could be the best ball handlers, the best guards, and it didn't matter worth a damn, because they couldn't dunk. All of that captured forever in the last trophy most of them would ever receive. I think it was really kind of thoughtless, and the way that like thoughtless things can sometimes have a really nasty edge to them, you know. Like, no one. And we had a woman on our team who was, like, 6'3", and she couldn't dunk the ball. You know what I mean? It was like there was no there was no one that we knew who could dunk the ball, no, not a single woman that we knew. And we knew some tall women. We knew women who were in college, you know. I mean, we used to, I used to have a dream, a recurring dream that I dunked the ball, you what, know. What were the circumstances? Were, I was on the baseline. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. And... <laughs> I, I mean, it was the same, I was in the same position all the time. And it wasn't like the kinds of dunks that you see in real life, like that, um, 
even the best players could do. This was a spectacular dunk because I didn't just get my hands up over the rim. I sailed over the rim, like with my feet and got above the um, basket and just like slammed the ball down through the thing. Like I was like, my whole body was above the rim, you know? Wow. It stayed in bounds the whole time. Mary Conway talking with her own Nancy Updike. Coming up, a kid who's not great at soccer invents a way to be a star that's in a minute in Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, Time Out. In this kind of unprecedented moment when sports have been put on pause, like, when has that ever happened? We have favorite stories from back before the lockdown to fill in the void, the sports void. We have arrived at Act 3 of our program, Act 3, Those Who Can't Play. Okay, so, so far in our show, we've done football and basketball. Let's turn to soccer. This is from Danielle Alarcon, the executive producer and host of Radio Ambulante, and it's about his dad. Growing up in Peru, Danielle's dad, Renato, played soccer around the neighborhood like all the kids did. But he was never anything special. So it was certainly like he was never thought of as being a, an athlete. What he was thought of from a young age was being, like, beyond unusually bright. You know, when I've gone back, everyone, I was introduced as, oh, this is Renato's son. And then just heard, like, a lit, like, just, you know, oh, your dad was so smart. Your dad was so smart. You know, when he was a kid, he won this, um, he was, like, 14, he won this national quiz show for kids on TV. And oh, like, wow. flew from the city where he lived in, you know, flew to Lima. He was the only kid from the provinces uh, who was a finalist, only kid from a public school, front page of the newspaper. He was an incredibly verbal kid, loved poetry and words, great talker. But again, soccer? There's two things that happen when you aren't one of the better players. They put you in goal, you know, to be a goalkeeper. Um Maybe they might make you, like, ref, you know, but that's, like, you know, really, like, low, you know? Yeah. Uh, but my dad turned that around and, you know, wasn't goalie or ref. And I'm sure he played. I'm, I'm not saying that he didn't play. But but he started calling the neighborhood games. Wait, wait, so he was calling the games. Did he have gear? He had a microphone and a little speaker. He could make his voice louder. In yeah, the, he could make his voice outside. outside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so basically he's just taking equipment down and he's announcing kids' actual games yes. as they're playing. Yes. Like kids he knows. Yeah, the kids in his neighborhood. I would just imagine, like, if I were a kid playing in that game, to have somebody, like, calling the game and I could hear them calling the game as I was doing it, it would make me so much more competitive. <laughs> you know what I mean? It makes it so much more epic. Yeah, absolutely. My, my picture of it is, like, how glamorous. Are you kidding me? Like, suddenly it's, their game is elevated. And it's not just a neighborhood game. Now it's like, look, this is just like we're on the radio, which is just like, that's the same they do for the World Cup. Danielle's dad would also make up games, like the whole professional games, like all the players, both sides, all the action. Starting, Danielle says, when he was 10 or 11. He would do it just kind of for himself as like a thing to do, though the whole family knew he could do this. And if, for example, on a Sunday afternoon, after everyone's had lunch, when my father would start to be the entertainment for the adults, hey, Renato, just can you make up a game for us? You know, make it a good one. And he would just describe a game. And it's a completely made-up game. Um, but when a goal would be scored, inevitably, you know, the adults would cheer and like, oh, that was great. That was a great game, you know. And he got really good at this. 
you know, eventually he was he was one of my great uncles. I had a little theater in a town called Moyendo on the beach, a uh, beach town in, in southern Peru. And they, they were doing sort of like a, a night of arts and poetry or whatever, a talent show essentially, yeah. And my, my great uncle, Juan Castor, signed up my dad and was like, you're going to do, do it just like you do for us. Around the house. Yeah. Yeah. On Sunday afternoons. And I think at that point he was like 12 or 13. Um, he goes out on stage, 300 people in the theater, and he's nervous. But what he does is essentially make up a game. So Melgar is the club from Arequipa. They're the local favorite from the province. And in this game that he met up on stage, they played the big fancy team from the capital, Lima. Universitario, La U. They're like the Yankees. They're like the Yankees, yeah. We don't like them. In his telling of it, everyone plays the game of their life, you know? Everyone does it exactly right as if, you know, as if controlled, like, you know, by a marionette, which, of course, you know, they, they, they were, right? Yeah, yeah. I can just, I, I find it very easy to believe that people could have been really moved by the sport. This is, this was, it wasn't like a fake game, it was the game. And so in his game, uh, the, the hometown team, like, gets it up to the edge and scores. Yes. Melgar scores. People exploded, you know, like you were cheering something that had actually happened. And the detail that he tells me that, I, that I'm always struck by is that when he, when, the, you know, the lights came off and he, he went off stage, his uncle was crying, just weeping, you know, with, with joy and with, I guess, pride. There's a video of you online with your dad on stage, and you tell this story, and then your dad comes up on stage, and then he calls a game. Yeah. He hadn't done this in, like, 50 years. But, um, you know, we, we threw a jersey on him, and he took the mic, and... And you threw some stadium sound underneath for realism. Sudamericano de football. 40 minutos, el score is 0-0. Hay un despeje de fondo por parte del equipo brasileño. What's he saying? So, uh, he's a, a minute... 40, I believe he said, uh, you know, uh, proving team against the Brazilian team. Um, and the Brazilian team is bringing the ball out of the back. Milton Santos, lanza la pelota hacia la derecha. Milton Santos, who was a, you know, a Brazilian uh, defender, kicking it out towards the right. So these are teams from the 50s? Yeah. Avanza Brasil, se interpone Heredia. Oh, okay. So Heredia was, was a, a midfielder, a proving midfielder. He intercepts the ball here. So this is where things start shifting. So Heredia intercepts the ball and passes towards the right. This is this is actually a stroke of genius that's coming up. Short pass to Navarrete. He passes Brandocinho. Chino Rivera cabecea. Chino Rivera heads it. Okay, so this is the part where I was like, Dad, you're really playing with our emotions here. The ball, in his telling, the ball hits the post. Like Chino Rivera heads the ball and it Hits off the post. Right, so bounces back out. Right. Vuelve al campo de juego. La recupera Terry. 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 Terry scores. So it's. People are so excited. Johnny chills, man. Peruano. Peruano. Peru. Uno. Brasil. Zero. I feel excited. <laughs> <laughs> See, it works. It's funny to think that if he um, if he had actually been great at soccer, that moment on stage never would have happened. You know? Right, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, 
you know, they 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 might have been singing songs about him, you know. Oh, somebody else would be. <laughs> <laughs> Some other kid would have been on stage. And, you know. Yeah. Daniel Alarcon. He first told this story on his show, Radio Ambulante. He's launched a new weekly podcast with news from Latin America called El Hilo. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Act four, the girl with the golden gloves. So now we travel back in time to a sweaty gym in 1998. That's when this was first broadcast. It's about somebody with a complicated relationship with the sport she loves, from Mima Spadola. Maritza was an accountant, a financial analyst at a huge insurance company. She was living day to day like anybody else. Then she heard about this boxing class that was being offered at the company gym. Some guy named Milton was teaching. Maritza liked sports. She'd even taken an aerobic boxing class before. So she decided to go down and check it out. Here I am with a suit coming in. Oh, it was the first time. I didn't, get, I didn't have a chance to change. So I'm walking in all, all suited up. So Maritza comes up. And she's so short, you know, she goes, I want to get rid of my stomach. I want to get rid of my gut. And so she was so short. I look at her, I go, honey, I teach boxing. You know, the same boxing aerobics, you know, aero boxing. This, if you want to come and dance around, jump around, I says, I'm not the guy for you. So this ain't what you want. He wasn't even thinking about me. He's, there's another girl who thinks it's the rope. I mean, so I threw a punch. He goes, oh, I'm freezing this punch there. He goes, let me see what you got in Real hard, real bam, bam, throw him. Man, you got a pretty good punch there. He goes, but who told you how to box? Because you're too stiff. That is not trying to fix me. And I'm going to teach you how to really box. I'm going to shine you up like a, sh- like a no shoe and polish you up. And I, he made me laugh. <laughs> I thought it was amusing. I found it amusing. It reminded me, it reminded me of watching the old movies. And this guy telling me I'm like a no shoe. He's going to polish me. I said, this guy's got an act. So I started working with like every day, with, uh, come down with the pads. Given her combinations, and so she started falling into place. So I was like, whoa. I said, you know something? I says, uh, I said, if I could bring you to my gym in Brooklyn, I says, you could win in New York City Golden Gloves. She goes, I can? I go, honey, that, what I got you doing right now, no girl fights the way you do right now. So that was, that's, that's how it all started. Every day after work in Manhattan, Maritza would take the subway all the way out to Brooklyn to train for three or four hours at Milton's gym and then go all the way back home to Queens. She spent her weekends at the gym. No one in her old life understood what she was doing. She'd grown up in the projects, put herself through college, gotten an MBA, held a good-paying job, and here she was, back so close to the streets. When she got a broken nose and black eyes in the ring, she lied to her coworkers about it, didn't tell them she was boxing. Her parents didn't approve of women fighting. They were conservative, born in Puerto Rico. Her friends were suspicious of her weight loss. They accused her of being anorexic, infected with HIV, or addicted to drugs. But at the gym, everyone believed in her. Maritza was the only girl at Milton's, his first girl. So she'd spar with the men there. So she took Joey one day and she was throwing like nonstop combinations and punches repetitiously. So it was an old man sitting down in the chair. She goes, God damn, that boy could throw some punches, right? But she had the head going. So when she finished, he came over to me, he goes, that's going to be one good damn fight. That boy is going to be great. I go, well, I hate to tell you this. That's no guy. He goes, what do you mean that's no guy? Look like a guy. I go, that's a girl. He goes, get out of here. So I said, Marissa, come here. 
So she come over to me, and I go, took over Heggy, I go, does she look like a girl now? <laughs> he goes, oh. Looking at Maritza, you probably wouldn't think boxer. She's small, just over five feet tall and only 106 pounds. Her features are fine and delicate, but when she talks about her love for boxing, you can see her in the ring. She's radiant. It's like speaking to someone who's had a religious conversion. Boxing has shed a light on me. It's like my vision. It's like I just obtained a vision. It's like this is, this is all, this is what I was put here for. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's next bout is the women's 106-pound class. The referee is Pete Santiago. In the gold corner, Maritza Arroyo from the Supreme Team Boxing Club. Arroyo is a financial analyst and a part-time personal trainer. This is her first With Milton's training, Maritza was unbeatable. Within a year, she had taken all the amateur titles in New York. She won the Metros, the Empire States, and in 96, she won the biggest of all the Golden Gloves in Madison Square Garden, a fight televised around the world, held in a ring where some of the greatest boxers in history have fought. Two straight left hands by Arroyo. And another straight left. Four straight left hands by Arroyo. Maritza and I get together to watch the video of her 96 Golden Gloves win. The garden's packed, the crowd's going wild. Maritza's incredibly fast and beautiful in the ring. Watching her, you understand what it means to be a smart fighter. She's calculated. The woman she's fighting is taller than she is, with longer arms, so Maritza ducks down low and jabs up to the body, choosing where she lands her punches, to the ribs, then to the chest. And when her opponent can barely catch her breath, Maritza's up, giving her a fierce combination to the face and head. There goes, there goes the uppercuts. There goes another one to the body. Ow! Another one to the body. Another one, another one. In the last 10 seconds, Manson gets in a good punch, straight to Maritza's face. Maritza stumbles back, and then seems to go crazy. She throws nonstop combinations, and the crowd is screaming. There you go, there goes the hook. See that? Whoa. That's it. 10 seconds. Bam. There you go. I said I threw it all. Go, go. There you go, there you go, there you go. There you go. Throw it. I missed a lot, but I threw it. Can we just watch the last 10 seconds? That was so cool. Oh my God, you are so good, Maritza. I am. So, I want to. I want to see you fight so badly. After the fight ends, we're laughing. We keep rewinding to watch Maritza's amazing finale. <laughs> so my grin. <laughs> you got a grin, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. Really That's okay. Okay. Yeah, that was a grin. That was a good grin. That was a good grin. We're both completely high and hysterical. Maritza's face is transformed. This is pure joy. And in a way, it's terrible, because we both know she's quitting boxing. Maritza wants to go pro, but there doesn't seem to be any way she could make a living at boxing. She's only 106 pounds. They don't even have a name for her weight class. If she went pro, no one knows of any women who are good enough to match her. As it is, there are only two amateur women at her level. In all her title matches, she's always been put up against these same two opponents over and over, and she's beat them every time. In 10 years, there may be enough women that Maritza would be able to make a career of it, but she's already in her 30s. She says she has to be realistic about the future. I, you know, I, I get mixed feelings. You know, when I, when I go into the gym, I want to do it. You know, but when I come away from the gym and I start looking at reality, 
it's like um, I'm sad. It's like a sadness. Um, I mean, nobody sees it on the outside. No one sees it. But on the inside, it's like it died. It's like, God, it could have been you. You should be in there boxing. It's like she's in love with someone she knows she has to leave. So she circles around boxing, quits, comes back for one-night stands. Last year, Milton signed her up for the Metro's tournament without telling her. On the night of the fight, he called her from ringside and told her they were holding up the match for her. Maritza got in her car and drove from Queens to Brooklyn, while Milton lied to the judges about Maritza being stuck in traffic. She arrived, beat her opponent in three rounds flat, but was so disgusted with herself for fighting when she was trying to retire that she left without even collecting her trophy. But being back in the game felt too good, and after that win, she just couldn't bring herself to walk away. Despite her reservations, she went on to fight in the 1997 New York Gloves, and of course won. In February, just after Maritza misses the deadline for the 1998 Golden Gloves, I go to Milton's gym to see her fight. Even though these days Maritza isn't there much anymore, Milton has promised me that Maritza will spar with a new girl he's training. We wait and wait and no Maritza. An hour passes. When she finally shows, she looks worn out and tired. She's not dressed to box, and she says she's got the flu. She's not going to fight. Right away, everyone starts pushing her. Well, let's just do a little. You want to? Yeah. But I ain't got nothing with me. What do you need? Everything. Yeah, don't, don't, I have nothing. She says she didn't bring her shoes. She doesn't have any of her gear. Milton points to some shoes lying in the corner, says they're her size. Suddenly, Maritza doesn't look so tired. But I got to tell you, I have no mouth for yourself. Then Maritza drops the pretense. We head down in the elevator to her car. It turns out she's been carrying her gloves, her mouthpiece, her wraps, all of her equipment in her car for the past year, just in case. I knew this was going to happen. I said, I don't want to come around here. I don't want to come. you got the biggest smile on your face. You look so happy right now. Because I love boxing, that's why. It's like, uh, it's what's got me where I'm at today. Okay, very, very happy and uh, very balanced, I guess. So, wow. all right, we're on uh, Second Avenue, Second Avenue, between Second and Third and Thirteenth uh, Street. So here I am with no voice, going over for I'm gonna go spar. Is that crazy? That's crazy. She grabs her bag and we race back to the gym. And as Maritz is getting dressed, I notice she wears tiny golden gloves on a chain around her neck. Milton stands ringside, pumped up, ready to see his favorite in action again. This is Howard Kelsell, live right here from Supreme Team Boxing. Folks! Relax your shoulders, Maritza. Relax your shoulders. Too tight. Ooh, good one. Maritza's stiff at first. Then she starts to relax. She's ducking down, dancing around the ring. And in the last 10 seconds of the fight, she has a surge of energy. She's punching hard, moving fast, throwing nonstop combinations. Come on, girls. Time. And afterwards, she's pumped up with adrenaline, sweating, laughing with Milton and the guys in the gym. She says she'll be back to spar and train every week. And even though she's missed the deadline for this year's Golden Gloves, she swears she'll take the gloves next year. Stay tuned for 1999, she says. Stay tuned. 
But Maritza doesn't show at Milton's the next week, or the week after. She breaks two appointments with me. She doesn't return my calls. And when I finally reach her, she's angry. Angry she fought again. Scared she's getting sucked back in. And how about the fact that you're still carrying around your gear? <laughs> well, okay, because I can't get let go of boxing yet. Um, I, it's, maybe it's my security blanket, okay? It's, it's like always knowing that it's always there, that I can always hit that bag and just, you know, I, can, I get in front of the mirror at my house every day, just kind of jab and come around and, you know, do the moves and, you know, it's, it's my connection to boxing. So I'll have to carry it. I have to, I carry this with me. I sleep with it. I have gloves in my car. I love it. It's, it's me. That story from Nima Spadola. Maritza has stopped boxing herself. She's aged out of it. These days, she teaches people to box. Our program is produced today by our production manager, Stowe Nelson, and our technical director, Matt Tierney. Other people who helped put together today's show include Nora Gill, Lena Masitsis, Catherine Raimondo, Christopher Swatala, and Julie Whitaker. Our executive editor is David Kestenbaugh. Our managing editors are Sarah Abdurrahman and Diane Wu. Those guys that you heard at the beginning of the show, Jason Kirk and Spencer Hall, their essay about sports was originally published on the website Hazlitt. Their upcoming book is called The Sinful Seven, Sci-Fi Western Legends of the NCAA. Our website, where you can stream our archive of over 700 episodes for absolutely free, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, every Friday, at the end of the day, sends out an email to all of us, and it always says the same thing. Love you guys. I love you guys. Take tomorrow off. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life.